0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than industries, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash manliness for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message data rates apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information more information. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Financial independence is a goal for a lot of folks, but what does it take to get there? My guest today explores that question on his website, Financial Samurai. His name is Sam Dogen, and before writing about money online, he worked in finance. We began our conversation discussing how his career in equities shaped his personal finance philosophy and made him leery of putting too much wealth in the stock market. Sam shares why he recommends putting a lower percentage of your money in stocks than is often recommended in mainstream financial advice, how that percentage should shift as you get older, and alternative ways to invest, build your wealth, and create multiple streams of income that will give you more control over your fortunes. Sam then shares what it means to be financially independent and some of the blind spots he thinks exists in the FIRE or Financial Independence Retire Early movement. And we end our conversation talking about how to plan your financial life for the future, especially concerning what the changing world would be like for your kids. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash financialsamurai. Sam Dogan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you were glad wrote, to be here. Oh yeah. So you run a website, one of my, one of the blogs I subscribe to, in my RSS feed, Financial Samurai. And I'm not sure exactly how I stumbled upon your website, but I've been a longtime reader. What I like about it, it's it's different from a lot of the other personal finance blogs out there. We'll talk about what makes your sort of approach different. But before we get there, let's talk about your background and how it influenced your philosophy towards personal finance.
1: Well, thanks for being a reader on my site for so long. I've been a reader and listener of your site and podcast for a while as well, and I've watched it grow so tremendously. So congratulations there, Brett. Well, thank you. My background is uh, pretty simple, I guess. My parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. I grew up overseas in Asia and in Zambia for 13 years before coming to the United States for college. And they were always really frugal. Whenever I'd go out to eat, my parents would admonish me for ordering anything but water And so I knew kind of their frugal ways uh, since I was a kid. And so I decided to go to public school, the College of William & Mary, which was only about $2,800 a year at the time. And then I landed my dream job in finance. And so from 1999 to 2012, I worked in the equities department of a couple major Wall Street firms. And then in 2009, during the financial crisis, I decided to start Financial Samurai, as a way, as a cathartic way to deal with a financial crisis. So I was thinking, well, instead of smoking or drinking, maybe it'd be healthier to write. And because I love to write and I love to connect and hear other people's perspectives. So I started Samurai in 2009. And by 2011, it was actually making somewhat of a livable, livable income stream in San Francisco. And so in 2012, I negotiated a severance after 11 years with one firm. And I decided to do this full time and be free.
0: So you mentioned uh, you started this in 2009, right? When the you know the financial crisis hit, were you affected personally by that? Like, was your bottom line, your net worth, like adversely affected?
1: Absolutely, I was crushed. So I started in 1999, right? Ten years saving, investing, really, really diligently. I remember the first month I started working, I had to get in the office at 5:30 a.m. and then I wouldn't leave until 7:30, 8 p.m. all the time. And I knew after about a month I couldn't I couldn't last, so I was basically saving and investing every single dollar I could afford. You know, I lived in a studio with another friend for a couple of years because I knew I couldn't last in this industry. So I actually lasted about eight years longer than I thought I would to 2012. So during the financial crisis, my net worth got crushed by I would say maybe 40 percent at the bottom in a matter of about six months. That took 10 years to accumulate.
0: And so before this time, were you were you following sort of like a traditional like mainstream approach to personal finances? Like where you said, okay, I'm gonna set aside this amount of money in you know, all in stocks because I'm young, because I got a long time for that to to grow. And even if there are setbacks, I can I got time to make up. Were you following that sort of thing? And did did your philosophy change after that?
1: So because I worked in finance and equities specifically, I decided to basically invest in almost everything but equities so my my investment of choice was real estate once i started accumulating a large enough nut and so i diversified away from the stock market after maxing out my 401k and you know receiving company stock and stuff like that but investing basically in san francisco real estate and lake tahoe real estate so i figured my career was already leveraged to real estate my bonus my pay you know my promotion. So I didn't want to have more inequities. And it was interesting because when I started in 1999, it was bull market. It was a dot-com mania. And then by 2000, the dot-com bomb bubble burst. And then by 2001, a lot of paper millionaires lost a lot of money and a lot of people got fired in the industry. And then, so that was a wake-up call. And then, you know, we had good times all the way up until, right, 2008. And then things blew up again. So my history in, the equities department and in investing hasn't been quite a glorious one, even though you know the stock market is close to record highs now. It's been quite treacherous, actually.
0: So, you know, like I said earlier, one of the reasons I, I enjoy reading the articles on your website is because your philosophy towards personal finance seems you know to go slightly against what you typically see from accepted, you know, personal financial advice. I mean, so how would you say your philosophy? Let I me mean, so, start off. Like, what do you think is the overarching philosophy that you you have towards money, and how does that differ from sort of mainstream advice?
1: I strongly believe that we all have the ability and deserve to be rich. I really come with that mindset that we all deserve to be extraordinarily wealthy if we want to be. Now, obviously, there's going to be more challenges. We're going to face more hurdles than other, you know, some other people. Uh, some people have huge head starts with their parents. Uh, with their jobs or whatever, but you know, thanks to the internet, we can learn other people's stories, we can learn other people's archetypes, and follow along and learn from others so we can ourselves get better. I have some fundamental uh, thoughts about personal finance, and that is, one, if the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. And then two, I think it's important that everybody forecasts their misery. And that ties together with fundamental number one, too many people, I think, don't forecast their future. You know, they start a job and they think, wow, this is so fun. You know, my colleagues are awesome, my boss is great. But as we all know, that life happens, right? Life happens at our job, things get boring, people get fired, exogenous variables happen all the time. And it's important to look ahead five, 10 years from now, and constantly be thinking, what are some of the things that might trip you up? What are some things, good and bad, that might help or hurt you along your path to financial freedom? So when you start practicing thinking ahead often, whether it's in your career, your money, your business, you start internalizing this different way of thinking where you're just not some zombie sitting there in the present thinking about what you got, but you're thinking ahead and hopefully making rational decisions to get to where you want to go.
0: So it sounds like, yeah, number two is like, think worst case scenario. Like what's your backup plan if things don't go right?
1: Always think about blue sky scenario, realistic scenario, and worst case scenario. And I think, you know, it's going to be optimistic, but if we have a default assumption of everything going out great, that's probably really dangerous for the most of us.
0: And I guess one of those default assumptions in, that you see frequently in the personal finance world is like going back to equities. It's like they all, whenever you read these personal finance books, they always assume like 8% return on investment. That might not necessarily be the case for some people.
1: Oh, no. Uh, there's like huge sequence of risk issues. If you look back at 2000, you saw losses in 2000 of around 12%. And then 2001, you saw another... Down year. And then in 2002, you saw another down year. So, three years in a row where you ended up losing about 42 to 45% of your wealth. So, if you actually had a significant amount of wealth then, you'd be in trouble if you wanted to retire around then. And then, of course, we had another downturn in 2000. uh, 2009, right?
0: Right. And then another thing people don't think about too is like if you lose, so the, the, the other sort of mainstream personal financial advice is like, well, if you lose in the stock, you have time to recoup that. But they often overlook is that sometimes it takes longer for you to recoup those losses than you think it would take.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's a, so if you lose 50%, you've got to make 100% just to get back to even. But during that time, back to 100%, you're losing time. And so the older you are, naturally the more you're going to appreciate your time because you have less of it. And I think a lot of people, maybe in their 20s or in their 30s will uh, underappreciate time and think, you know, they're invincible and they have all the time in the world to get this back. But you will soon realize maybe when you hit 40 or plus and if you have a family to raise and people to take care of that you really don't want to waste so much time trying to get back to even anymore. So at some point, you've got to figure out how much is enough for you and you've got to dial back your risk tolerance and say, you know what, maybe four to 5% returns a year on my portfolio or on my overall net worth is good enough. Maybe it's not worth the risk of trying to make a 10% plus return because it really doesn't change the quality of your life and it could actually significantly impact, negatively impact the quality of your life by having you you know, have to work more or stress more just for money.
0: So yeah, that that kind of goes to one way you differ from personal finance, like mainstream personal finance stuff. So, you know, the article of faith is that, you know, the younger you are, the more money you should have in equities. I think it's like 90% is something like that, the number you see thrown around. But you personally don't do that. You said that you, you know, because you worked in equities, you, you, most of your money went out of equities and did things like real estate or whatever. So it seems like it's it's a very conservative approach. How do you think that conservative approach helps you win in the long run? I don't know if it's
1: conservative, I think it's more rational. I think people who are putting 80 to 90% of their net worth in the stock market, I think might need to do some soul searching here and and look at their net worth distribution and look at other asset classes like real estate, uh, like fixed income, like your own business equity, because life is... Quite complicated. 90 percent, no way. I mean, yeah, maybe when you're in your twenties and you don't have a family and you have you, you're a vagabond or you just want to move to job every two to three years. But in, in my view, wealth is more about real assets, right? So assets that you can derive utility from, that you can live in, that you can generate rental income. Stocks, you can't really derive any utility. You need actually a purpose. For your stock investments, and the issue with stocks—I is, mean, don't get me wrong—I've got about twenty-five percent of my net worth in stocks. But the issue with stocks is that it goes up kind of slowly, and then it just crashes very quickly due to panic. And if you don't have a discipline for what you are investing for, you're kind of throwing money into a vehicle that is shown to do well over time, but there's really no utility, and that—that that is something where I like to invest in something where it could potentially go up, appreciate in value and provide utility. You know, two things, not just oh, it could go up and make me richer. I mean, who cares?
0: Well, it seems also too like the by focusing on things like real estate or your business or even, you know, just acquiring skills so you can ask for and negotiate for a raise. Like those are things that are in your control. Like the stock market, like you can't do anything about that really.
1: Yeah, you're a minority investor that is subject to the whims of, you know, the government, the Federal Reserve, fraud, whatever. And, you know, I think, you know, the stock market is great for those who want to, you know, give up control and just invest passively. So at the same time, you know, if you believe in yourself, if you want to be active and try to build wealth, I think you can do a little bit better job through a business or through real estate. You know, there's obviously some great stocks. That I like because I really believe in the business people and the product, you know, Amazon, Tesla, you know, these are amazing products. And I would be willing to bet on these people. Cause so one of the interesting things that I noticed from my twenties to now my forties is that not only do I invest in public equities based on the fundamentals, but I really try to invest in the people, like the people who I see are business visionaries who can get the job done and who can think ahead always three to five years and anticipate because you know financial samurai even though it's uh, it's just a personal finance side it's our lifestyle business and I like to think ahead as well to see if I can grow that because it's fun
0: so let's talk about like you know an investment strategy we'll call it that a wealth strategy for someone who's in their say 30s so you mentioned someone they're in their 20s no family no strings attached you know putting most of your money ninety percent of your money your wealth in stocks probably not a bad idea. But let's say you're in your 30s, family, you 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 have a house. So there's a lot more at stake if you, you know, your net worth takes a beating. So what does like a strategy look like for that person? I know, you know, specifics uh, it's going to vary from person to person, but sort of generally what what does that look like for you?
1: It's going to be dependent on everybody's individual earnings powers and ability, but if you're in your 30s and you have a family, you should be at least neutral real estate By owning your primary residence so neutral real estate is just floating up and down with the water and the tides you're short the real estate market if you're renting right you are a price taker you're paying rent and you're getting no equity so you're short the market and you're only long real estate if you are long or if you own more than one property and this is really important to for people to think about if you short the stock market over a 20-year period, you will probably lose a lot of money. And so for those who are anti-real estate, renting for 20 years is also quite similar to shorting the stock market over a 20-year period due to inflation and the normal appreciation of assets due to labor and so forth. So I think you know, if someone's in their 30s with a family and so forth like that, You should probably have something around thirty percent to forty percent in equities, thirty to forty percent in real estate. So you're at least neutral real estate, and the rest in more stable, lower risk investments like fixed income and CDs. I I think you should always have five to ten percent of your net worth, at least in low risk, stable income securities.
0: So okay, real estate, you're you're big on that. What if you like you don't want to be a land a landlord, right? Like, I mean, I've, I have friends who that's what they do. And it sounds like a nightmare sometimes because the tenants are just terrible. They just trash it up. They're always having to do repairs. Yeah, So that's something else to consider too, if you want, you know, if you're thinking about doing real estate, but, but are there other ways to invest in real estate without having to do that?
1: Yeah. You can just invest in a REIT and be a commercial property landlord that way. There are many different types of REITs. You can invest in real estate crowdfunding, which is where you invest you know, a thousand to 10,000, at least in these commercial properties across the country. And again, when you're talking about being a landlord, you're talking about going long real estate. It's going beyond your primary residence. So one step at a time, own your primary residence. If you know you're going to be there for five, 10 plus years. And I found that stability, stability does wealth pretty good. You know, no matter what people say about job hopping every two to three years or whatever, just finding your community, you know, find find yourself in your 20s or whatever. But after about 10 years of looking, uh, you know, I think you should probably find or realize that there's a place in the world where you want to settle down and establish some roots. And once you establish some roots, you see a lot of positive network effects from your relationships, your network, uh, the other opportunities around that city and your investments in real estate. And the stock market—you can—you you can live anywhere, but there's positive network effects if you can stay in one place for a certain period of time.
0: Right, and that goes counter to a lot of, what a lot of young people—they think they got to constantly move, job hop, job hop, move to the city. It might be good to like just settle in a suburb where you know you—you're happy, right?
1: Hey, you know, sometimes it takes longer to find yourself. I thought, you know, I was really lucky to find a job in finance, and I would have gone anywhere in the country and in the world to get that job and so i just kind of went where the job took me but eventually i wanted to settle down and when i found san francisco in 2001 i was like you know what this place is cheaper than manhattan uh it's more diverse the weather is great good outdoor life and it was closer to hawaii where my dad's side of the family is from and taiwan where my mom's side of the family is from so i figured hey why not set up shop and so i've been here ever since and you know i think i'm going to be moving soon to hawaii but it's been a good run. And if you can identify something quicker where you're going to be happy living, I think, uh, I think that's a great thing.
0: So you mentioned that breakdown for someone in their 30s with a family, like 20 to 30 in stocks, 30 to 40 in real estate, and then some of the rest in sort of very stable things like CDs or fixed income type things. Uh, does that change as you get into your 40s or 50s?
1: It definitely changes. And there's just so many different permutations that it's hard for me to give some exact recommendation. Sure. But I do believe that everybody should figure out how to build their own long-term growth equity. So in other words, starting a business. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't know how to start a business, whatever. Uh, Neither did I. But if you look at the world's wealthiest people, their asset allocation breakdown, the wealthier they are, a larger percentage of the net worth comes from equity in their business. And it doesn't matter what kind of business it is. It's just equity in their business. Because when you have a business, you can not only earn money from that business, you can hire your friends and family for that business. And you can sell your business for multiples of revenue or earnings. Whereas if you have a job only, you can only sell your time. And so you don't want to limit yourself. The way I look at, My online business is that I run it because I enjoy writing and I enjoy connecting with other people, but I also run it because I have a son now and I know that life is going to be hard for him as he gets older because of globalization, because of the speed at which information travels and because of the rigors of trying to get into a good school and so forth. And so my motivation now is to keep the business running long enough until my son tells me, you know, I want to have nothing to do with learning about online marketing or writing or anything like that. Because I think I think world is going to get much, much tougher and it's going to get much more bifurcated to those who have and then those who have not prepared.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Harry's founders were tired of paying up for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. They knew that a great shave doesn't come from gimmicks like vibrating heads, flex balls, and handles that look like spaceships. So they bought a world-class blade factory in Germany and started making razors that combine simple, clean design with quality, durable blades at a fair price. I've been using Harry's for a few years now, unlike some of the other name brand razors out there, multi-blade razors. Never gotten any razor burn, razor bumps using Harry's. It's a smooth, clean, close shave. Fantastic. Besides the blades, they got other products as well. The shave gel smells fantastic. Great lather. If you want to get a $13 value trial set that comes with everything that you need for a close, comfortable shave, you're going to get a weighted ergonomic handle, five blade razor with lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover. Here's what you got to do. Go to harrys.com manliness. That's it. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash manliness to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you and help support the show. You're going to get a $13 value trial set. comes with everything you need for a close shave. So you're going to get the handle, the razor blade, lathering shave gel, and the travel blade cover. harrys.com slash manliness. Go check it out. Also by The Great Courses Plus. If you want to continue learning and exploring, you should check out The Great Courses Plus. The streaming service offers unlimited access to learn about virtually anything like history, business, science, art, and literature, even how to take better photos, done that course, and learn a new language. There are thousands of lectures to explore presented by top-notch experts who are passionate about what they teach, and you can watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus completely on your schedule. Here's a course I've been listening to lately. It's Stress in Your Body. I am terrible at managing my stress. This course gives great insights to how stress can affect us mentally, and physically, the effect it can have on sleep cycles, memory judgment, and gives tips on how to manage your stress better that you're experiencing. So I've appreciated that. If you'd like to try this out, you can get a free trial. I know you're going to love this because all the courses there are fantastic. You can stream them on your smartphone while you're driving on your commute. It's fantastic. Get a free trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com manliness to start your free trial today. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com dot com slash manliness start your free trial. If this course you want to check out first. Check out stress in your body. It's really interesting. One more time, thegreatcoursesplus.com dot com slash manliness for a free trial. And now back to the show. So speaking of a business, and that necessarily doesn't mean you have to completely quit your job to start a business. I mean, you're a big proponent of having a side hustle, where just sort of a side stream of income that supplements your income from your career.
1: Oh, absolutely. Now, you don't want to uh, you don't want to rely just on your job income there's no way in hell if I was had if I was back in my 20s 30s that I would only have one job you know we know that companies aren't as loyal as they once were and so therefore you have a higher risk of getting fired at any given moment in time and the great thing is is that the internet has allowed you to develop so many side hustles right from upwork to Craigslist to TaskRabbit to You know, ride share driving. These are side hustles, and then there's obviously the businesses where you can start your own website to sell stuff, or you can write stuff, you can build your brand. I mean, it's just endless, and it's just so easy to start now. You know, you can just start this podcast, get enough listeners, you can get advertising dollars. It's just an endless variety of ways to make money, and I and I'm so I'm so excited for people who are growing up in this era right now who who are younger. Who can take advantage?
0: And so then also, it can turn into a full-time gig eventually, possibly.
1: Oh yeah, ops, uh, definitely possibly, right? The best is if you're working. Let's say you're working from 7:30 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can either work on your side business from 5 a.m. to 6:30 or 7 a.m. Or you know, after you get home, you do that for two, three hours. You tinker with it, you toy with it. There's no downside at all. There's no downside at all. There's all, the only downside is if you ask your company, hey. Can I do this? And they say no. And you do it anyway. And they find out, and then they <laughs> screw you or something. So you got to be strategic about that. But I, I worked on financial samurai off hours for two to three hours a day for two years before I started making a livable income stream. And I remember in Santorini, Greece, I was just hiking my way up the hill, and I wanted to get a ten-dollar beer. And I got an email with my iPhone. There was Wi-Fi at the bar. This is 2011, and it was like, "Hey, Sam, I'd like to advertise on your website." If you put up this advertisement, I'll pay twelve hundred bucks. And I was like, "Wow, twelve hundred bucks, really?" I was like, "Okay, sign me up." And so I put up that code in about twenty-five minutes, and then he PayPal'd me the money instantly. And I was like, "Oh, time for another beer." And that was the moment where I thought, "Hey, there's actually life after finance. This is pretty cool."
0: Okay, so <clears throat> speaking of things we can do to control. And have more control over our wealth, starting a side hustle, but also your job. Like for some people, you know, they they might not be able to quit their job right away. But one thing they have control over is, you know, negotiating a higher salary. A lot of people don't are afraid to take that leap.
1: Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe it's a self confidence issue. In the first two years, I was learning, right? Learning what the hell am I doing? I was a cost center. But after a while, you kind of get the hang of what it is you need to do to provide value at your firm. So everybody really needs to understand that the reason why you have a job is because you create more value to the firm than your total compensation and benefits. If you didn't, you would be fired. And so so long as people know that, they need to have confidence in themselves that they're providing more value. And I do recommend that everybody every at most every 2 years have a heart to heart with their manager and say, "Hey, these are the things that I provided to you. I would like a raise." If you go on the open market, you could probably immediately get a 25% raise easily. And so you have to keep your employer honest, at least every other year. And preferably, you can do so every year during a year-end review. That is, if you're not suffering from Dunning-Kruger and thinking you're providing more value than you really are.
0: Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of people like that. So I guess one thing is like, keep a record of the things you've done so that you can present that to your employer when it's time. For sure. Your manager doesn't
1: remember what, you, what great things you did in the first and second quarter. So it's up to you to manage up, manage your manager and highlight with confidence, but with respect, these are the things that I've done for the firm to make it better. And this is why I deserve to be on this track. You need to make sure that your manager is on top of your career progression.
0: So talking about financial strategies and trying to get the most bang for your buck and getting that create the most wealth and most income for you. But I mean, for people who have debt, I guess one of the best things they can do is pay off that debt because that just frees up so much money for themselves.
1: Yeah. So debt is interesting. You know, whether you have student loan debt, uh, mortgage debt, you better not have credit card debt because not even the great Warren Buffett has been able to return an annualized return equal to the average credit card interest rate. So my formula for paying down debt and investing is called D A I R. Basically, what you want to do is take your debt interest rate, let's say it's 4%. So you would essentially use 40%, so you just multiply it by 10, you get 40% of your cash flow to pay down debt, and then 60% of your cash flow to invest. So you're always paying down debt or investing. If your debt interest rate, let's say it's only 2.5%, so my mortgage is only 2.5%, I've only been using about 25% of my cash flow to pay down that debt. And I've been investing 75% of my cash flow to invest. Now, I limit it up to 10%. So if your debt interest rate is 10% or higher, then you should spend all your free cash flow to pay down that debt. Because 10% is ridiculous. Because the debt interest rate needs to be compared to the risk-free rate of return. So what is that risk-free rate where you can earn money and not have to worry about losing money? And that risk-free rate of return is either a one-year treasury bill or a 10-year treasury bill or your money market rate, right? So right now, you can get a money market rate interest rate of 2.5%, and you can get 10-year treasury bonds only about 2.7% right now. So it's not that great. But the point is is that if you pay 10% or higher in debt interest rate, you're paying like a 7.5% plus premium on a risk-free rate of return. That is like robbery. So that's why credit cards are so rich. And that's why you see so many websites you know, promote credit cards. They make so much money off people who don't pay off their debt every single month. You got to crush that credit card debt. You should never have credit card debt. And then you should have a disciplined formula using FS dare to pay down debt and invest in a proper ratio.
0: Gotcha. So let's uh, talk about a goal that... A lot of young people have. And there's a lot of talk about this lately in the news and the media. It's this FIRE movement. It's like, finan- what's it? Financial independence, retire early. Is that what that stands for? Is that mm-hmm. what that... All right. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it. What does What does financial independence look like for you? Because you've written about that too on, on Financial Samurai.
1: Yeah. I mean, my tagline is achieving financial freedom sooner rather than later since 2009. And so financial independence to me is is simply having enough gross passive income to cover your best life living expenses. It's that simple. So you need to invest and save beyond your 401k and your IRA and so forth. You need to build a large enough after-tax investment account that spits off enough gross income so you don't have to work. Now, where the lines get shady or gray is that a lot of people who are proponents of the FIRE movement don't have that concept. Their passive income does not cover their life expenses. What they're doing is they're talking about financial independence retiring early. Meanwhile, they're hustling like hell on their blog or on side hustles to try to make a living in a non-traditional way. So it's important for listeners to really delineate between what is true fire. And you know what? Everybody has their own definition, right? But the reality is, is we've come through, we've just gone through a nine-year bull market. So it's really easy to understand why so many people are feeling confident about their finances. But I just want people to be a little bit more reserved to understand, hey, what's really behind the movement? You know, is the person who is expounding fire, does he or she have enough passive income to cover his or her life expenses? Or is he or she working, you know, 70 hours a week as a freelancer and saying they're financially independent, but they're really just changing their jobs from full-time work to freelancing.
0: Gotcha. And then like, so you talk about it's passive income. Like, how do you, like, how do you get that sort of passive income? I like, guess that's just real estate. And I mean, are you investing in stocks that pay dividends? I mean, what is that? How do you get that passive income where you're making enough to cover your, your basic life expenses?
1: Yeah. So You want to invest in things that spit out income so the value of anything is based on its current earnings and future earnings so passive income uh, investments such as certificates of deposit fixed income and bonds physical real estate peer-to-peer lending dividend investing private equity investing creating your own products online for example i have a book that i make about $4,000 $4,000 a month. And it's about how to negotiate a severance. Mm-hmm. What else is there? Real estate crowd sourcing. You know, that's definitely one of them. So there's definitely multiple ways you can make passive income and the passive pacif- passivity or whatever the word is, is, is different. You know, some like owning physical real estate is going to be less passive than just owning a dividend stock, for example. But, you know, you basically want to build a portfolio of different passive income investments.
0: And how much do you need to like sock away so you can get that passive revenue, that passive income? Cause I think is it is it like more than what people think they they might need, like a lot more? So
1: the math is, math is pretty simple. Let's say you, you can live off ten thousand dollars a year. So you get ten thousand dollars divided by your expected return, realistic return on your passive income. So let's say that's four percent. you would need $250,000 in capital to generate $10,000 a year in passive income at a 4% rate of return. So let's say in San Francisco, you know, you have a family to support and you have a house and all that stuff, and you want $200,000 a year in passive income, and you take a conservative you know, rate of return of about 4%, then you need about $5 million. And so this is just passive after-tax income. And so you can supplement that by doing freelance work, or you can have, you know, more active uh, income, such as you can run a podcast or you can run a website. Now, there's all sorts of things you can do once you no longer have a full-time job. But it's important to just realize that it's the after-tax investments that are going to create that gross passive income for you.
0: Gotcha. And so you mentioned, like, so you, did you say, like, the example, like, ten thousand dollars a year? Are there some people who live on ten thousand dollars a year?
1: I was just using it as just math. Oh, just an example. Uh, oh, math. Yeah. Okay. So if, we, right. if we say a hundred thousand dollars a year at <laughs> right. a four percent rate of return, you need uh, two point five million dollars in capital.
0: That makes sense. Okay, but I mean, I guess part of the fire movement too. And you said, you know, part of becoming, you know, increasing your net worth is also decreasing the amount of money you spend, so you have more money right? That's another component besides making more money, even though, you know, making more money, that's an important part, but like yeah. requiring spending less money is also an important component of this.
1: Yeah. I would say a good ratio would be to focus 80% of your time making more and 20% of your time, you know, having a reasonable budget. Don't be you know stupid with your spending. The the thing is, the fire movement has really been pushed by people who live in low cost areas of the country. You know, whether they live in the Midwest or the South, the heartland of America. But as we know, especially through the presidential election last time, half the population lives in the expensive coastal cities like San Francisco, New York, Boston, Washington D.C., Seattle, Los Angeles, and so forth. And so, you know, what might be good for one person to live off thirty five thousand dollars a year in Alabama is maybe not going to be that feasible for someone who's living in New York City or Manhattan. So the numbers are very different. And so I'm trying to, given I live in San Francisco, and I'll probably get a whole Honolulu, is to try to speak about financial independence for half the population, at least, who live in expensive coastal cities and who want to stay in expensive coastal cities because that's where their family and friends are.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, like middle class in Manhattan is going to be a different number Compared to someone, as you said, in Mobile, Alabama,
1: right? And so, it's just it's just the way it is. Right? Things are expensive because of opportunity, and because oftentimes due to the lifestyle that area brings. But then you know, there's obviously going to be a breaking point where there's just too many people, traffic, and also all sorts. So if people can geo arbitrage. More power to them. But I found that it's harder to just pick up your life and go live in a cheap place or in the country or around the world if you don't have any, you know, connections.
0: Are there any other other blind spots people have when it comes to planning for financial independence? I think,
1: you know, a lot of people, this is a, actually an important blind spot. So, a lot of people in the FIRE movement say, "Yeah, just go move to a low-cost area of the country in the south or in the midwest." That's fine, but if you're a minority, oftentimes it doesn't it's not that easy. It just feels like you're just not as comfortable, you know, because if you suddenly go from you know, you're a 30% racial population in your city or even 50%, like in San Francisco, if you're an Asian person and you go to you know, somewhere else and you're only 6% in representation, it might feel a little weird. So that's a financial blind spot. You just can't tell people, hey, you, you can move and just lower your cost of living. I think a lot of blind spots you know, come from extrapolating your returns. You know, so we're all, we're all pretty wealthy now, right? After a nine-year bull run anybody who's been investing in stocks and real estate, private equity, whatever. And so the danger is extrapolating your compound returns over the past nine years for the next nine years. Hopefully, you know, we continue to be all Warren Buffett. But the reality is there's going to be down years. So last year, 2018, was a down 6% plus year on S&P 500. And so if you have another down year and another down year, you know, you're your expectations are, are going to be off your, your, your forecasts there's other blind spots too you know a lot of people compare someone else's middle to your beginning and they don't have the patience to grind it out and to do what someone else has done to get to where they are. I think that's really important that's why everybody needs to understand the background and the history of the person who is espousing whatever it is he or she is espousing. Another blind spot is that parenting People think parenting is easier and cheaper than it is. You know, if you are a full-time worker, parenting might very well be easier because you're not parenting, you're, you're at your job 40 to 60 hours a week, right? But if you are a stay-at-home parent who has to deal with everything 24-7, you know, that can be much harder. And, you know, parenting takes a lot of time. It can take a lot of money depending on where you live. So these are some of the blind spots that I see.
0: And t- speaking of kids you know you've got kids and this is something i'm always thinking about too is like how do i prepare my kids financially for the future right there's always that you know i've had people on the podcast talking about how you know colleges that we as we know it today like won't exist in 10 to 15 years so i'm always thinking man should i be socking away money in a in a college savings account for my kids if like they're not even they're going to go to like online and get some sort of like you know, online credential. I mean, how? What are, what's your approach to that for you know planning for your kid's financial future?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm really excited about and I'm also uh, nervous about. I don't, I don't know exactly. I believe by the time my son goes to college in, you know, 17, 16, 17 years, college is not going to be as important as it is now at all. We're learning everything so much quicker and everything is free online now, that spending record amounts of money for tuition for four years is is ridiculous, in my opinion. You know, it used to take, I don't know, 10 hours to go to the library to look up, check out books and do research. Now you can do everything online. So why does it still take four years and record high tuition to get that same college degree? It doesn't make sense at all. So I'm prepared for the college system to change. Maybe it'll change to only two years or three years required in 16, 17 years. But I certainly am not wanting to spend record amounts on an education that is not going to provide the returns. So what am I doing? Well, I'm hedging. I am contributing $15,000 a year, which is the state uh, gift maximum per year to a 529 plan. Hopefully it'll make some money and earn some you know tax-deferred income. And returns along the way, but two. My greatest hedge is to continue running Financial Samurai, so that there's something that I can teach my son when he's old enough to learn about communication skills, writing, speaking, maybe maybe videography, maybe community building, maybe SEO, content marketing, uh, business development, and so forth. The funny thing about a lifestyle business is that it has the same components theoretically the same departments as a much larger business. You know, you got the PR department, uh, CEO, CFO, CMO, whatever it is, you know, I could create some role for him so he can learn. And hopefully he'll be interested in learning something. And I remember when I was going to business school part-time, I remember being so much more interested in the subjects because I was learning something in the classroom and then utilizing what I learned in my real job in finance. And so, you know, when we go through school, I mean, none of us remember like anything of what we learn in grade school, right? Like chemistry and biology. It's it's all out out the window. But hopefully I can teach him some cool stuff that is relevant to what he's learning in school so that he can find something more interesting by the time he does go to college, if at all.
0: I like that. Yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing. I'm hedging. I'm putting I'm sucking away money in the five twenty nine account, but also planning for college to be not around. So yeah, we'll see what we'll see. We'll see how it shakes out. We've got my kids eight. He's got we got ten years. <laughs>
1: yeah, my kid's uh, twenty one. So I, I think college is like the last bastion of you know the elite who want to protect this. You know their institutions, and, and, and it doesn't really matter anymore. I, I really don't think college matters anymore in six to seventeen years.
0: Well, Sam. Where can people go to learn more about your work?
1: Uh, you can come to financialsamurai.com. I'm always there. Or you can go to financialsamurai.com forward slash forums. And there's a great community of people there who are looking to build wealth uh, largely through income generation and investing.
0: Sam Dogan, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. Hi. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you have thousands of in-depth articles about personal finance, social skills, personal fitness. You name it, we've got it. Also, while you're there, check out our podcast archives at artofmanliness.com slash podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And it helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to not only listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.